Welcome to Get a Grip with Shane Bacon, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, hey, welcome to the Get a Grip podcast. I am your host, Shane Bacon. appreciate you guys joining us this week. We have uh, Claude Harmon on for the first time. Had a really good conversation with Claude about Brooks Kepka. They've gotten back together over the last couple of months. Dustin Johnson, we talked about Live Golf for a little bit. Asked him about junior golfers and what he's looking for these days because when you get to a level of instruction, obviously a whole bunch of people come your way. How do you pick and choose between the junior golfers you work with? So I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Big thanks to Claude for jumping on. Hope hope you guys all have a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you're spending this week in and around family that you want to spend time with. Hope you're eating the type of food you want to be eating. We are uh, we're doing a little different this year. We've been one of those families over the last few years. This has become popular but we've become one of those families that when we haven't done the big family Thanksgiving like we're doing this year, no turkey. So we did steaks last year. This year, turkey sides with a rack of ribs that we're throwing on the Traeger on Thursday. Uh, Traeger, not a sponsor of the podcast, but you know what? Somebody from Traeger's listening. You want to throw a sponsorship our way, send a couple grills? I'd be okay with that. I would not say no to that type of situation and that type of deal. But uh, happy Thanksgiving. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Hope you get a chance to check out some football, eat a whole bunch of food, and uh, enjoy the family as much as you can. Uh, Just a reminder, I wrote a children's golf book. You've heard a lot about this. It's called The Golfer Zoo. It is currently available, and you can purchase for yourself, for your kids, or it makes a great holiday gift for the parent or friend in your life that you have no idea what to buy for them, especially if they've got a young child in their lives. It's called The Golfer Zoo. You can go to back9press.com. That's nine the number. Don't write it out. Back9press.com slash bacon. You can order it straight from there. Boom. Order it. Send to your house. You'll enjoy it. I appreciate the support. It's been a lot of fun the last couple of uh, of weeks seeing the pictures roll in of the kids reading it with their parents. They make me very happy and very emotional. I'm a big fan of those. So keep sending them. And if you get the book and you're reading it to your kiddo, have somebody take a picture and send it to me. I appreciate that. Enough for me. Let's get to our guest. Well, happy to be joined by Claude Harmon. Claude, you have uh, been kind of just jet-setting around the world right now. Are you like, what's the jet lag situation for you? Where are you coming back from? I got in from Dubai yesterday. Um, so <laughs> went to, stayed up till about 10 and then woke up about three. So uh, about a nine hour time difference. But, you know, you just get used to it, sadly. Oh, God. I, you know, it's it's funny. I, I um, you know, I mean, obviously the pandemic, I didn't travel internationally for a couple of years. And... I've had a few trips this year, and I just went to the Zozo in Japan, and I'm getting close to 40, Claude. Yeah. I, it was like a week, dude. I've got two little kids. You know, they're up at all hours of the night at this point, and I couldn't even get close to on a regular schedule for some seven days. I feel like it's almost like hangovers. They never used to hit you, and now they do. I feel like jet lag is the same way. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 53. I was in um, – went to Bangkok about a month and a half ago, then went to Jeddah, and then back here, so – yeah, it's um, unfortunately when you travel a lot, you just have to get used to it. And I'll be okay. I'll get through Thanksgiving and then get back on track. <laughs> so 2022 is going to go down as one of the weirdest years in golf history. How has it been for you? I mean, you, you've got, I'll, I'll say it, you've got people on both sides of the aisle. Obviously you talk and are friends with a lot of people. What's the year been like for you both professionally and personally? Uh, listen, Shane, I think it's been, you know, very crazy year. I mean, if you'd have told, I think everybody um, last year at this time that in November, right before Thanksgiving, that the golf professional golf landscape would look the way it looks right now. I just don't think people would have believed you. So um, it's been crazy. I went to um, all eight of the live events um, right now that all the players that I've got, um, you know, playing professionally in the men's game are all um, on live. I was working with Garrett Kigo earlier in the year. And then, um, you know, right around the time that Liv started up, he said, you know, I just want to go back to not having a coach and do my own thing. So um, I've, I actually think I've been one of the lucky instructors because I don't have to bounce back and forth between the two tours. But, you know, Sean Foley, he's got guys on both. Um, you know, Pete Cowan's got guys on both. Justin Parsons got, you know, a bunch of guys. So um, it's been it's been really, really <laughs> interesting. Um, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like that's the the summation of the year is it's just been crazy. And speaking of crazy, you know, you're a guy that worked closely with Bruce Kepka for a long time. I know you guys started working together again around the Bedminster Live event. I was listening to uh, your Q&A podcast, your podcast, by the way, Son of a Butch, 
uh, with Claude Harmon. Very good listen. Worth your time to check that out. But you did a Q&A podcast a few weeks ago, and you said that Brooks Kepka has never worked harder than you've seen him work over the last few weeks, especially headed into those final couple of live events. Did you feel at all that Brooks had become slightly complacent just with where he was in life? I mean, going through some, you know, personal changes in his life. Obviously, Liv had come about, and we were figuring out what that was going to look like. Was there complacency in Brooks Kepka that now has turned into a bit of a of a gasoline into the engine again? I wouldn't say, Shane, it was complacency. I mean, listen, Brooks has had some injuries. Um, his body, I mean, I, I stopped working with Brooks at the, um, you know, in 2020. Um, his body, you know, where it was, you know, when he was number one in the world and, and kind of the dominant guy in the majors, his body today versus the way it was then is is not even close. I mean, he's had some pretty significant injuries. Um, and listen, I, I always say that professional athletes, when they're struggling on the golf course um, or professional golfers or athletes in general, it doesn't tend to be a dip in their form, shame. I mean, and they don't wake up one day and just not know how to play golf, play basketball, play football. There tends to be something else that's causing the problem. In Brooks's case, I think it was kind of a perfect storm. Um, you know, he had an amazing run. He got to number one in the world. He was kind of seen as this alpha male in the major championships. And one, that's that's really hard to keep going. I mean, it's hard to win majors in the way that Brooks was just knocking them off. I mean, the only person we've seen really do that is Tiger Woods. And you know, if you think about it, um, you know, it's been eight years since Rory McIlroy won his last major championship at Valhalla. If someone told you at Valhalla in 14, in 2022, at the end of the year, Brooks Kepka and Rory McIlroy are going to have the same amount of majors, you just, you wouldn't have believed it because you would have thought Rory at this point would have been to, you know, well over, I, I mean, you would, you could have made an argument that he'd been close to 10. Um, and Brooks had never won anything. So I think it was a, a really, like I said, a perfect storm. Um, you know, Brooks made a decision to to change coaches and, and move on from working with me. Um, you know, he got injured and then the pandemic happened. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think he he reached out to me and, and said, hey, let's get kind of, the as he said, when he won in Saudi Arabia, let's get the band back together. But for all the people that think lives a joke and nobody cares and everybody's just getting guaranteed money, one of the things that I never thought would come out of Liv is the fact that Brooks and I would get back together and work together. And <laughs> if you think that, you know, the players are just going through the motions and don't care, then why would Brooks rehire someone like me that, you know, was with him for eight years? You know, he got to a point to where he was just tired of playing golf poorly. So, um, you know, we made some changes, kind of went back to the blueprint of what I kind of knew made him a great player and made him the best player in the world. And we went back to that and um, he won not long after that, which I think was really, really important for Brooks in the next phase of his life. He's, he's gotten married now. He's made the choice to go to live. And, um, but yeah, I think there were a lot of things going on. I don't think it was a complacency issue at all because I mean, it's not spin. Um, I've never seen him work harder. Um, you know, since Bedminster, when he asked me to come back, I mean, we've worked our asses off. I mean, he's been up here pretty much, you know, three, four, five times a week in the off weeks. Um, we've been putting a lot of work in. And um, and listen, the comment that Brooks made about the fact that he didn't practice was, I remember, you know, I was staying with him that week and I was like, yo, man, what are you <laughs> But I know what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, listen, we play so much that if I'm not at a PGA Tour event, I'm trying to get time off. I'm trying to get downtime. I'm trying to recharge. So a lot of the times, you know, Brooks is one of those players to where um, he puts a lot of work in at events. Um, you know, John Rahm is the opposite. John Rahm very rarely puts in a lot of work at tour events. But off weeks, from what I've heard from John and his coach, Adam Hayes, and the guys that see him out at Silverleaf, they say he's grinding nonstop in the off weeks. There are a lot of guys that use the off weeks to recharge, and there are guys that don't. So, um, yeah, but it was really, I think it was important for Brooks, and I think it kind of made everybody maybe wake up and realize, you know, he's, he's still a great player. Claude, the point about the quote that Brooks said about the practicing thing, you know, Tiger changed the way we think about golf in a lot of ways. Um, Nike made a commercial about Tiger going out in the rain and hitting balls. I feel like golf fans look at these pro golfers as, you know, 
8 a.m. I'm on the range on my off weeks. I'm there till five or six. I'm sweating through shirts. I'm cha- I'm ripping through gloves. You know, they're changing my grips on the range. That's <laughs> definitely not the case. And I feel like the way these professional golfers, especially modern professional golfers, quote unquote, practice is a lot different than maybe what fans close their eyes and think about when they think about these guys and their off weeks. Well, it's the, and I think social media has got a huge part about that, right? I, th- I mean, if you look at people that are trying to play competitively that aren't on a tour, their entire Instagram feed will be them in the gym and them on the driving range. And one of the things that, that, that I always tell players and juniors, juniors specifically, Shane, is they need to practice less and play more. And I think one of the things living in Jupiter, where there are so many tour players, um, the guys tend to play more than they practice. And when they are practicing, they're practicing for something specific. They're not just practicing for the sake of practicing. Um, If they're hitting it good, they're going to try and take some downtime. Um, They're going to try and get some time off. So um, I think if most golfers at the competitive level and a lot of golfers that are trying to play competitive, they would practice smarter and they would get quality practice as opposed to quantity. Um, But yeah, I mean, you need... The tour players, you know, regardless of what tour you're on, you've got to try and get downtime. And Brooks, one of the reasons why I think Brooks and DJ have been so successful is, and and, and a lot of players do this, but I'm just speaking from my experience. They would always plan off weeks kind of after a big stretch, after the majors. So they knew they were going to grind. They knew they were going to go. They knew they had maybe three weeks on the road plus a major sometimes at a push, maybe a month on the road plus a major, but they kind of knew that once they got done with that tournament, they were going to get two weeks, three weeks, maybe in a month off. So they would just work their asses off and then knew that the the, the vacation and the time off was a reward. Um, back in the day when I was working with Ricky Fowler, Ricky would always try and plan two weeks off. So the first week was just no golf, nothing. Maybe do some gym work and stuff like that. You know, spend time, downtime, go out, Whatever. But then the second week would be, okay, now I got to get back in the gym. Now I'm going to start getting back into the range. But I don't think people realize the travel and the, you know, how much these guys are on the road. I mean, they're on the road a lot. And so it, it beats you up. I mean, I always tell the junior golfers that I'm working with, listen, if you're going to play division one college golf, one of the reasons you need to get in great shape is you're going to start traveling more than you've ever traveled in your entire life. And the travel is going to wear you out. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And again, I mean, I think, again, when you think about it, and you said social media, Claude, about just the way we talk about practicing. I mean, you think about that as well in the way we think about traveling. I mean, you think about a private jet changing the experience. Yes, it is incredible to fly private versus have to go to an airport. But at the same time, you're still traveling. You're still in an airplane. And especially with a lot of the live golfers is the the second half of the schedule was an international schedule. And you've got to bake in time to get away from it. The funny thing is there are two types of pro golfers, and I know you've run into both. One is the golfer that pro golf is my job. I work on golf as my living, and when I'm not playing golf, it's not really in my peripheral, right? And there's that second line of pro golfers that are obsessed with playing golf, and they want to play all the time. Which pro golfer have you run into throughout your career that is the most obsessed with golf? Somebody that maybe you say, hey, take a few days off, and they just can't step away from it. I mean, I think there are a lot of guys like that, that, that they watch golf, they consume golf, you know, golf is their life. They're going to play a lot of golf. Um, they play golf with their friends. They play golf with their family. Um, Brooks was the opposite. Brooks, and, and, and you know that, I mean, from his interview, Brooks was not a golf guy. We'd be at tournaments back in the day and some guy would walk by and I'd go, Hey, great, great playing last week, you know, keep grinding. And he'd say, that guy, what happened? That guy win. I'm like, no, I finished second. He's like, I don't watch golf. And <laughs> Then you have guys that that like it. And I see, I'm the opposite. I'm in the Brooks camp. I mean, my life is so golf-centric with the players I work with professionally right. on all the tours, LPGA, Live, PGA Tour, then all the, the people playing D1 college golf, then all the juniors. And then when I'm home, you know, I got home. We flew back from Dubai yesterday. We landed about 11 o'clock to Orlando, got home about you know, drive down to Jupiter about two. And, you know, I was in the office at eight. I always joke with DJ's brother, Austin. I was like, when you get two weeks off, you take two weeks off. You and your right. your wife, Sam, you guys go on vacation. You do that. It's not like you come home and double bag it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm in the Brooks camp. When I get any time away from golf, I try and take it because it, it can become so all-encompassing. And I feel like 
It helps me be fresh when I do get kind of a little bit of reset and, and things like that. How hard is it to not overcoach pro golfers, especially the pro golfers you work with? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. One of the things that I always think about when I work with professionals is one of the things my dad told me, um, you know, when I started working on tours and stuff, he said, listen, I think one of the most important things to becoming a great coach with professional golfers is sometimes as much what you don't say is sometimes as much as what you do say. Um, I remember Sean Foley saying once, you know, most of the people that recognize people like me and, and the people that coach on tour, they see us at tour events. So they see us behind a golfer on TV, on the golf channel or on any of the networks. And, um, but when we're there, there's really not a lot we can do. And I remember Sean said once, you know, the PJ tour is like, it's like a battlefield. It's like a war zone, right? And there's really not, if, if a, if a player isn't playing well, if the player is gets shot or, you know, to use that analogy, we're just kind of doing triage. We're just kind of figuring out a way we can get them through the week. And then if we can get some off weeks, because the last thing you want to be doing as a, as a coach or as an instructor is doing a lot of work at tour events. So in an ideal world, we would do the majority of it away from the tour events. And then when we go to the events, um, we're basically just kind of a second set of eyes. And you know, by Wednesday afternoon, there's always, Shane, the, the major championship Wednesday afternoon freakout. And... It doesn't matter what the player, who the player, how good they are, if they've won majors before, they all go through it. You know, they all kind of get that Wednesday afternoon freak out. And we're so um, insecure. Every golfer yeah. is so insecure, even the best in the world. Yeah. And, you know, they're human just like everybody else. But um, I try, I'm of the camp. I, you know, I learned from my dad. Um, I try and make things as simple as possible. Um, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're not curing cancer with giving golf lessons. It's just, you know, it's a game with a ball and a stick. And the object is to get the ball in the hole and the, the least amount of strokes. And so if I can go to a tour event and really not have to say anything, that's, that's, a, that's a win for me. I remember getting to Belle Reve when Brooks won in um, the PGA there. He had played good the week before it, um, at Firestone, the WGC at Firestone. And we got there and he said, and I wasn't there that week. And he said, listen, I am playing really good. I don't need you to say anything this week. Just make sure my ball position, my alignment and the basics don't get off. And, you know, basically just kind of saying, Hey, just kind of leave me alone. And to me, that's, that's the best possible scenario you can be in as a coach to where a player is saying, listen, I'm ready to go. And, you know, just kind of get out of the way and just stand there. But to simplify it, it's your point about trying desperately and as hard as you can to simplify the whole process. We are living in an era now where there's more information at the player's hands than we've ever had before. I mean, every single player, you go to a driving range on tour and they've got at least one device behind them, if not two. They know things like spin rate and smash factor and there's new terminology popping up every single day and every single week. Is there times where you have to take all that away from them and go, listen, man, like, this is too much for you. This is your, this is too much to take in. Let's go back to the basics. I think you have to look at each player, Shane, as an individual. There are players okay. that, that can handle information that want information. Um, there are some players intellectually that are smarter than others. You know, uh, right. Trevor Immelman, one of my very dear friends in professional golf, Trevor and I worked together at a, you know, when he was starting out on the European tour, when I was living in Europe and Trevor wanted as much information as possible. And in a lot of ways, I think Trevor was almost too smart. Um, he wanted, and you could give him more data, but I knew that with a guy like Trevor, it's basically given, you know, crack to the crack addict. The more I give him, the more he's going to ask for it. Right. And right. then you have a guy like Dustin Johnson, who probably is, I think DJ probably has the highest golf IQ of any player I've ever worked at, but most people think DJ is really dumb. Right. And one, he's not stupid. He does and says stupid things sometimes like everybody else. But DJ's golf IQ is unbelievably high, but he uses a launch monitor for really specific things. So he's only going to have maybe max two or three numbers on it. He doesn't want a lot of information because he feels like that kind of clouds the way that, that he performs. Um, when I, you know, I've worked with DJ for you know over 10 years now. And when I first started working with him, 
you know, I would really want him to practice. So I'd set up all of these drills and I'd say, hey, get up here. And I'd envision we'd be going through, you know, three, four hours of practice. But it, it wasn't long before I realized that that's just not the way he, he operates. And so I kind of know that I've got about 30 to 45 minutes if we're going to work. I've got 30 to 45 minutes to fix something. And then after that, he's going to want to go do something out. He's going to want to go play. He's going to want to go to lunch. But if I try to get him to do something for, you know, two hours and set it up, he's going to check out and we're not going to get anything out of it. So I think one of the great things about what I do um, for a living is I learn so much more from the players than I think they learn from me. Um, and working with DJ really made me become a better instructor, a better coach. I said, listen, I know I've got him for a specific period of time. Um, he wants things delivered very, very simple and very, very concise. And he wants to fix the problem quickly. So it forced me to kind of say, okay, I've got all of this stuff that I want to work on this week in the off week, but I've got to try and figure out a way to get it done in a way that it doesn't confuse him and stuff. So, you know, that's where I think, you know, my, my dad will go down as probably, in my opinion, the greatest tour coach of all time because he made things simple. He wanted players to be able to go out and play. He doesn't think that golf should be complicated. And, um, you know, I think that's why he's been so successful. And, you know, I've tried to emulate that approach. Claude, you worked closely with two of the best players of this generation in Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson. And something I found interesting in your conversation about going back to Brooks was a lot about the setup. It wasn't necessarily about the golf swing. It was getting into it and making sure things are set up right. How quickly can you notice something off with one of your pupils that you've worked with for a number of years? Is it a two or three minute situation? Is it one golf swing? How quick into revisiting something are you able to kind of dissect what is quote unquote wrong with what's going down? Well, I think one of the unique things about being a, a coach on the, on the PJ tour or whatever tour you're on is once the player goes out to play a competitive round of golf, it's, it's, it's almost like they go to Mars. They go to another planet because I can't talk to them. So I can watch right. them warm up and be with them on the driving range. You can be with them in practice rounds. But as a coach, we're one of the few, I mean, tennis now allows coaching, but in golf, we're still the only coaches that aren't allowed to talk to players once they go out on, on the golf course. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. There are coaches that I see coaching on during events and talking to players, but I've never done that. My dad told me if he ever heard or saw me doing that, he'd kill me. So um, <laughs> it, is, it is interesting because once they start playing, if things start going bad, you can see what the problem is, but you can't do anything about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the changes sometimes are just basics. They can't see themselves. Right. And they also get into play mode. So if players have been playing a lot, maybe two, three, four weeks in a row, if they've been over to the open championship, if they've been playing on a lot of wind, if you get them in an off week, they're a little bit like an F1 formula one race car after the race, there's dirt all over it. The tires look terrible. They're, they're beat up. So a lot of times it's a simple fix. Hey, your ball position was getting too back. Hey, you were aiming too far to the one way or the other. Um, when DJ was had that year where he won the, the FedEx and won all those tournaments and won the, the, the Masters, um, the Saturday of Eastlake at the Tour Championship, he didn't play great. Um, you know, I think he maybe shot even or one under, but it wasn't the way he had been playing. And we got to the range afterwards and I said, listen, you just got too far away from the golf ball today, especially with the driver. You just need to get closer to it. And so we started hitting some balls and I was like, you got to get closer to it. You got to get closer to it. And he was like, bro, I can't, I can't get any closer to it than I am right now. I'm not Jim Furyk. And I showed him a, I showed him a swing, a video. And he's like, man, I'm not anywhere close to that. And then I showed him a side-by-side -side comparison of um, his setup like three weeks earlier when he won Deutsche Bank by, you know, a million and shot 30 under. And he was immediately able to go, oh, okay, that's fine. And then we had a really good rain session that night. And then, you know, he played great. But sometimes it's just ball position. It's alignment. It's, you know, the basics. And I think further to your point, Shane, in, in 2022, those things aren't sexy. They're not cool. 
They don't translate to Instagram. They don't translate to social. Hey, I'm working my grip today. Great. How are you? Right. Which song are you going to come up with that's going to show you trying to strengthen your grip, right? What effect are you going to put? What filter are you going to put on that to make is it Is that Taylor cool? Swift or we go a little yeah, heavier exactly. with that? So um, yeah, it is sometimes these guys are such, or anybody that plays and gets a tour card, regardless of what tour that they're on. I don't think people that are listening to us talk they don't realize that Rory McIlroy is LeBron James, right? He is Tom Brady in the sporting world. You know, DJ is, you know, Kyrie. Or, you know, they are the greatest play. But because it's a sport chain that we can all play, you can go out and play. You can go to the golf course. You can go to the Honda Classic here in West Palm Beach and the Monday after the tournament where, you know, somebody had a one-shot lead and hit it in the water on 17 and lost – you could go from the same tee and hit it to five feet, regardless of your handicap level, you could do that and make a So I think people, when they look at professional golfers, they don't realize that the PGA Tour is the NFL. It's the NBA, right? It's Major League Baseball. And so I don't think the players that play professionally on all the tours around the world get nearly the credit that they deserve for being such great players. So... They're so good that if a little tiny thing gets off, one, you know, at the men's level, they've got a tremendous amount of speed. So, if you know, if you're working with somebody like I do, guys like Brooks and DJ who have a ton of speed, a guy like Rory McIlroy that's got a lot of speed, if something in the way they're setting up to it gets off a little, they're going to hit the golf ball a long way offline because they can hit it a long way. And so the miss can be really, really accentuated. But a lot of times you can just... You know, I always say that in, in golf instruction, there's a domino effect. Most golfers do one thing, one main thing that causes all of these other four or five other things to go poorly. But there's one domino that just pushes all the other ones. And that's why you're standing on the driving range and you'll hit a bad shot and you'll say, man, I'm not trying to hit the golf ball 30, 40 yards offline. But you're doing one thing that then causes all the others. So in 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 Brooks's case, Brooks always plays his best when he fades the golf ball, when the golf club stays in front of him going back, then it's able to stay in front of him going down. When I started working with Brooks again, his ball position had gotten back. His shoulders had gotten really, really closed. His left arm was really high at address. His alignment was off. So because he was so closed in his setup and because he was aiming so far to the right, he was trying to take the golf club outside, but it just was going back inside. It wasn't he just couldn't do it. As soon as we changed the setup, changed where he was aiming. And then I said, listen, feel like you're getting your shoulders wide open. And again, he's like, bro, I can't get my shoulders any more open than that. And I showed him on video and he's like, dude, that's unbelievable. So um, yeah, the professional tournament golfer that you're watching on TV on any tour is they are, you know, they are the best in the world at what they do. And I think because golf is, a game that, are, you know, when's the last time anybody in their 40s played a competitive football game? Was a wide the receiver. Answer, the answer like, is hopefully never, except for Tom Brady. Right, right. But when do you put on, as somebody that watches football, right? When's the last time you suited up, put on pads, you got 12 on 12, you got an offense and a defense and you played a real game. That just right. doesn't happen. No. But you can watch someone play golf on the weekend. You can watch a major championship. You can go, if you're lucky enough to play that course, you could go there. And I think, the people that watch golf, they think the playing field is somewhat equal. And I don't think people realize just how... I mean, if you look at a guy like Rory McIlroy or a guy like John Rahm, I mean, these guys are... I mean, they are so good. Um, I got to walk around. I, I did some commentary for a, a radio station in Dubai and walked around with John Rahm over the weekend on, set, on Sunday. And I mean, the guy is just... He's so good at playing golf. When you watch Rory McIlroy play golf, the golf that Cam Smith has played this year, um, the golf that DJ's played the latter part of this year, I mean, Lydia Ko, the run she's on right now, these, these golfers are just, they're beyond elite what they do on the golf course. And, um, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. How has the iPhone changed your profession? <laughs> oh, it's made it a lot easier. I, I can mean, only imagine. <laughs> I can still remember going to PJ to. European tour events, because I started on the European tour in like 01, I had a Dell Daylight readable laptop. 
so you could read the screen in the daylight. And I had these long cords and these tripods and you'd hook the camera up to it. And then you do, you do all this stuff. And now you just, you know, all the, all the launch monitors hook up to your phone, all the putting stuff hooks up to your phone. And then, you know, the, the camera on your iPhone is, is it's unbelievable. And, you know, there are a lot of golfers that are, you know, incredibly visual learners. Um, sometimes DJ will say to me, Hey, send me some swings from a couple of weeks ago. Or a lot of times he'll just want to see, he'll say, Hey, let me take a look at that swing. And he'll just watch it. He'll say, Hey, can I look at it? Brooks is the same. And they'll kind of look at it and look at it and they'll go, okay, got it. They want to see it. Um, but also Shane, sometimes you have to put players on a band from looking at their golf swing because it's easy to just tear it apart. I do that a lot with juniors. I'll sometimes say, listen, you need to spend a month of just not looking at your golf swing. You know, just work on it. Go see what it looks like on, on the golf course from the scores, then come back. And I always say to players, if you are going to use video, use it for something specific, meaning look at it because you can always find things wrong with your golf swing, right? I mean, uh, you can always find great example, Trevor Immelman. When I worked with Trevor in the early two thousands, I think Trevor had one of the best looking golf swings on the planet. Tiger used to come up to me and say, man, Trevor's got a beautiful golf swing. Adam Scott used to say to me, man, I just, I love the way Trevor swings the golf club. And I remember in 2004, they were defending champions at the world cup. He and Rory Sabatini and we were in Spain and, Trevor's just like, my golf swing's terrible. Shit looks terrible. Hate it. Hate everything about it. I don't know what we're working on. It's awful. Just don't even show me because I got the worst looking golf swing on the planet. Like two, three years ago, he was like, hey, you got any old videos of, of my golf swing? Because I really want to kind of get back to some of the stuff I used to do. So I sent him a video from the World Cup in Spain in 2003. And he said, man, I'd give anything to swing the golf club like that now. And I'm like, you were looking that in 2003 and said you had the worst looking golf swing on the planet. So I think if you are going to use any, in my opinion, if you're going to use any of the modern day technology now, use it for a specific reason and a specific problem. If you're trying to figure out with a launch monitor how far you're hitting it, like DJ does. DJ, when he sits on the launch monitor, really, he's just looking at carry distance. That's it. When he starts hitting drivers, he's looking at carry distance and spin. That's it. Because those are the things that, that he's working on. Um, and so I think you just, you want to be careful that you're not videoing every swing and doing and looking at every single nuance because you can always find something to work on. You know, you can always find, you know, Roy McIlroy's trying to work on his golf swing, right? John Rahm's trying to work on his golf swing. The best players and Lydia Coe's trying to make her golf swing better. And it's, that, that quest and that search, you're never going to have it, right? I thought it was a great comment that, that Rory said on Sunday when he, when he was talking to the media in Dubai. I feel like I'm as complete a golfer as I ever have been. I mean, you would think that he was a complete golfer five years ago. You would have thought when he won his first major championship and everybody thought he was going to be the next Tiger Woods and was hitting the golf ball distances that no one had really seen since Tiger and had the speed that he would have been a complete player. So that quest that all of us are trying to go through, Shane, from a, a golf standpoint, you know, to swing better, you can always swing better. But I, I talk a lot on my podcast about it. I talk to players about it. The difference between technique and execution, the best players in the world can execute regardless of what their golf swing looks like regardless of how they're playing. Um, it's a myth for the fans that think that every time these guys go out, that they've got all the shots, that they can draw it, they can fade it, they can hit it high, they can hit it low. That's not true. And so your golf swing is always going to be in a constant state of flux. Um, if you are hitting it good, take a bunch of video so that you can go back and look at that. If you have access to a launch monitor and you're really swinging good and you're really playing well, Get some data. If you can get on 3D and, and get all that data so that you have benchmarks to go back to, okay, so that's where I was last year when I was hitting it really good, not hitting it good right now, okay. Oh, okay, let me go ahead and look at some of these things so I'm not flying blind and we have kind of a, a baseline and a roadmap. What is your iPhone storage situation like? I mean, is this just like golf? I mean, do you have folders? You have like a Dustin folder and a Kepka folder or is it just total chaos? It was total chaos and so I... I spent some time on some of the flights that I've been taking, the long haul <laughs> stuff, and say, okay, I'm just going to put it into, you know, 
things. But I've got, I got, a, I've, I've probably got over thirteen thousand videos, swing videos on my phone. Unbelievable. Hey, what's the <laughs> most, uh, what's the strangest or maybe most modern way um, you've been split up with from a player? Has has that changed much like the iPhone? Has there been like text or or something like that where it's like, hey, it's this oh, is yeah, over? Oh yeah, yeah. You, no, you you get from the younger guys, you get um, you get rinsed by by a text for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean that happens all the time. That, that's it. Yeah. Hey, and it's always the same thing, right? It's always the same. I always say that you know, tour coaches and instructors, we always get hired and fired for the identical same reason, right? You get hired because you know you you tell them new things, maybe you keep things really simple. You just tell them the same thing over and over again. You're on time. You're, you're always around. You're really, really dedicated. You're sending them stuff and everything. And in the end, you get fired for the exact same reason. Dude, you, I mean, you're calling me all the time. Um, you know, I'm tired of hearing the same thing. You know, it's the same stuff over and over and over again. And you're like, yeah, it's the same, same stuff that helped you make 35, 40, $70 million. Yeah, it's the same stuff. Yeah, funny that. It's just the same. It's like Nick Saban every year at, at Bama. Yeah, we're going to work on the same stuff this year. You know, this is how we do things at Bama. We're just going to do the same thing over and over again for 15 years and, and you know, turn, you know, those programs into powerhouses. And so, yeah, you, but you definitely get fired by, you get fired a lot by the agents. Um, Have you ever been fired by the news cycle, meaning you didn't know you were fired until you either read a story or saw a tweet? No. No. Okay, good. No, good. no, I haven't. I haven't had that nice, one yet, nice. but- Sometimes when you do get fired, you know, the new girlfriend trots out like one tournament later, right? And they're on the range and, you know, they're already going. And you're like, dude, you've been sleeping around for a while. You know, you've been sleeping around. So um, listen, tour play, it's a single, it's an individual sport, Shane. You can't fire yourself. Right. So you've got to fire someone else. If you're playing bad, Chubby Chandler, the, the, the old super agent for all the Euros, you know, Lee Westwood, Darren Clark back in the day, Chubby was... He was known for player playing poorly, rinse the caddy. You got to fire the caddy. You got to fire the coach. got to fire. The only person that Chubby never wanted anyone to fire was him. Don't fire the agent. He always made sure that <laughs> he never, no, you never fired the agent, but you always fire. And so um, they can't fire themselves. So as hard as it is and as devastating as it can be, um, you know, and as hurtful as it can be, um, you know, I spend more time with tour players over the last 10, 11 years. And I've spent with my family. Um, you know, I remember when Brooks let me go, my daughter, who was just starting college at that time, she was like, he fired you. I was like, yeah. And she was like, you've spent more time with him than you have with me and my mom in the last 10 years. She's like, you're never home, but yeah, you get, you get fired by text. It happens all the time. Yeah. I could, I could only imagine. All right, I got a couple more for you. First, uh, I know you mentioned junior golfers you've worked with. How do you, someone that's established a name that people know, how do you go about picking new people to work with? Is it about attitude, golf swing, their trajectory? Is it kind of picking and choosing certain ways, or is it kind of a combination of all that stuff? I think it's a combination of all of that. Um, I, I feel like it's my job and my duty, Shane, at this point in my life with you know, all of the players that I've been lucky enough to work with, you know, I've, I've worked with two players that have gotten to number one in the world in Brooks and DJ. I've been a part of um, seven major championships. Um, I've helped players win pretty much and been on their teams to win pretty much everything that anybody would want. So I kind of feel like it's my job as a, as an instructor and as a coach and a mentor to be honest with, with juniors and to be honest with parents. Um, my favorite is the dad that says, Hey, just to let you know, you're never going to meet anybody that works harder than my my 17 year old son. I'm like, you think Justin Thomas doesn't work hard? So the the hard work part of it, if you want to be a professional golfer, I assume that the hard work is a prerequisite. So don't use that as your calling card that you're a hard worker, because that's just. I mean, if you go to Nick Saban and say, Hey, Nick, I promise you, I'm going to show up to practice every day. He's going to go. Uh, of course you are. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you look at talent. Um, people ask me all the time. Again, it's, I think it's my job to be honest with my, my wife always beats me up for saying this. Um, Hey, what's the difference? What's the biggest difference between my son and, and Roy McIlroy? I say, well, we can start with talent and then we can start with talent and keep going with talent. 
So, you know, again, I, I reference his name a lot because I'm fascinated by coaches, but, you know, I'm a huge Nick Saban guy from the way that he coaches. And Nick always says, listen, God-given talent, natural ability can probably get you to being good. You can kind of start at being good because you have a natural talent for that. Um, but everything else off of that, I mean, I think in 2022 now on the men's side, um, if you're 17, 18 years old and you're five, six, and you don't have a lot of speed, you're behind the eight ball. Yeah. Um, you know, the modern golfer, if you look at most of the players playing competitively now, you know, they're over six feet tall. Most of the juniors I teach, I teach a 17 year old junior. He's six foot four. He's got the same ball speed and the same club head speed as DJ, maybe even a little more. Um, so I think we are in an age where speed, power, um, that's the way the game is played right now. Um, you know, and if, if, if you've got that, I always say that I, if I go to a junior golf tournament and watch 20 juniors play, and especially, you know, junior boys, I'll tend to gravitate towards the kid that maybe doesn't have the best swing and maybe doesn't hit it straight all the time, but is hitting it 50 to hundred past all the other kids, because you could, you can teach somebody to, if they've got, if they're going to play, you can teach them to hit a shot. You can teach them to hit a shape, but speed is something that you either have or you don't. And, and I think, you know, when you do look at players, I, I think you look at attitude a lot. I think you look at the way a player handles adversity. When I go to junior golf tournaments, um, it's amazing to me that junior golfers think that they're never going to make bogeys, that they're never going to make bad swings. That my grandfather, um, who won the Masters in 1948, told my, my dad when he was a junior, my dad had a really bad temper and, you know, was a club breaker. And, you know, my dad would admit one of the things that kept him from being a better player and having a better career on the PGA tour was his temper. And my dad said, he was like 15, 16 years old. You know, he broke a club and my grandfather said, you know, I don't know what you get so mad about because you were never any good. <laughs> He's like, I've got a green jacket and I don't act right. like you, you know, you've never <laughs> been any good. So I think the 16 year old, the player trying to play that doesn't have a tour to play on their attitude is probably worse than the number one player in the world. Right. And um, their expectation level is so high. And so I always try and have players, juniors, listen, manage your expectations. Yeah, I was in my academy in Dubai and we have an elite junior development program there. And we got all the players that we got all the players that just played in a big junior tournament. There's probably 12 kids in the room. We got them all. We got their scorecard up on the on, on a big screen and, and said, okay, you know, how many three putts did you have today? Well, uh, you know, in this round, you shot, you shot 70, you shot 76 today. Okay. How many three putts? Well, I had three, three putts. Okay. So turn the three putts into two putts. That's three shots. And you had two doubles and a triple. I'm like, just turn the doubles into bogeys, turn the triple into a double. So I, and so we put up, okay, you've just now saved six shots by just making two more bogeys, a double and eliminating the three pots and you go from finishing 27th to 11th, 19th, you're top 20. So trying to manage their expectations and, and, you know, dealing with parents, I think is, is, oh gosh. is tough. I can only imagine um, what that's like. One of my pet peeves, and I, I call kids out on this and the parents don't like it, but you've got the dad, it's mainly the dads, you know, they're, they've got to be in the lesson. They've got to stand there. And so you say, I say to the kid, you know, watch him hit the balls. I've never met him. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you. Um, tell me a little bit about your game. And the dad starts answering. And I, and I always look at the kid and, and I always say, why is he answering? And the kid will look at me and I look at the parent. I'm like, why are you answering? Right. Not asking you what this game's like. I'm asking your 15-year-old son. And a lot of times the kids will kind of, what kind of shot do you hit? What kind of, and they'll kind of just, and so I, I think it's my job to try and say, listen, if you're going to try and play competitively, you're the only person on your team, right? It's an individual sport. So you're the only person that you can rely on. And you have to look at your, your golf like it's a team, like it's a team sport. And right now you're doing things that are hurting the team. Some of them might be techniques. Some of them might be... But a lot of times, junior golfers, I mean, if you look at the best, Shane, the best juniors in the country right now, they're not shooting 66 and 64 a lot. But what they do a lot is they shoot even par a lot. 
They shoot one under a lot. You know, top juniors shoot a lot of 70s, 71s, 72s, and 73s. Yeah, they will have a breakout tournament where they'll shoot, and they'll get it going and they'll shoot 68 or they'll shoot 60. But over the course of a year, they're not 100 under par like Roy McIlroy is for the year. So I think I'm trying to talk to juniors and players that are trying to play competitively that aren't at the level that they want about, about just trying to minimize the mistake executing better on the golf course, thinking better on the golf course, having some sort of plan when you go play. And then you can figure out what you need to practice. Um, I see a lot of juniors that aren't really good at anything. And they're trying to get good at everything, right? right? They're trying to be a great ball striker. They're trying to be a great driver of the golf ball. They're trying to be a great hitter. And I always say to, to kids and parents to compete at the next level, wherever you are, you have to be great at something. That could be a great green reader, a great wind player, a great strategy, a great attitude, a great bunker. It doesn't matter what it is, but you have to have something that stands out. If you can go through the, the top 10 players in the world right now, you can just go through them on the men's and the women's side and say, all right, tell me what Rory McIlroy is good at. And you can say, well, drives the shit out of it. Great driver of the golf ball. Hits it miles. Right. That's his immediate calling card. Right. Justin Thomas has become, in my opinion, the best wedge player in professional golf. Um, Easily the most creative wedge player. And his ability to control distance, yep. his ability to control trajectory. And everybody that plays with him says that. You know, Patrick Reed, whether you like P. Reed or not, everybody that plays a competitive round of golf afterwards in the locker room in dining on the range is going to say you're not going to believe the up and down p reed had on 13 today <laughs> he hit it right of the flag and guys are going no way got it up and down and, and they'll go dude he hit it to like two feet their minds will just be blown right and right the best players in the world they also know what their strength is they know what their calling card is you know sunday at the live event in miami dj played the last round with cam smith and we were all at you know, having some drinks afterwards and, and, you know, they had a season ending party and we were all there. And DJ said to him, yo, man, I mean, would you make 150 feet of putt on me today? And Cam Smith looked right at him with hat on backwards, double fist and cocktails with that cheesy mustache and the mullet and said, well, I normally make 300 feet. So I let you off the hook today. <laughs> right. So the best players in the world know what their strengths are. Yep. Right. And I want the junior golfer I want to work with kids that say, you know, my ball striking is not really good, but I'm a great putter. And then you go watch him putt and you go, he's a great putter. Hey, what type of player are you? You know, my iron game's average. Um, I'm not a great putter. Short game's not great, but I got a lot of speed and I'm longer than everybody else I play with. And then you put them on a launch bar and you go, yep, you're longer than everybody. So you try and get these kids to ride what their strengths are. And I think, you know, the, the old Hank Haney nine ball, Got to have all the shots. I think to keep progressing, you don't have to be great at everything, but you need to be really good at something and you really need to have a repeatable shape. You have to have a repeatable shape. When I met Brooks in 2012, um, he was trying to hit draws and he wanted to hit fades. We worked on a couple of things and I said, listen, if you want to fade it, do this, 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 and this. And he was like, what about my club face? And I was like, no, no, you've got enough speed to offset that. Like DJ, right? You can rotate fast enough. And he was like, he hit like five drives with the driver. And he was like, bro, it can't be this easy. I said, it has to be this easy because <laughs> the game you're trying to play is inherently hard already. So again, go through the top 10 in the world. There aren't a lot of elite ball strikers. There are a lot of guys that basically just hit one shot and they pretty much hit it all the time. Yes, Rory McIlroy has learned how to fade the golf ball. Absolutely, he's learned how to fade the golf ball. We got to number one in the world hitting a nuke bomb high draw. Right. And that was it. And dominated Shane professional golf. Dominated. I remember when Rory won his first tournament. I was living in Dubai at the time. He practiced at our place like two weeks afterwards. He was hitting balls. We had him on track, man. He was hitting balls. And, you know, Rory was launching it in the, in the early days. He was launching it really, really high. And he was like, yeah, I probably should try and get my launch down. He was really, his angle of attack was like six, seven, eight up on it. He's like, I should probably get that down. I said, well, what happens when you hit a fade? He said, mate, I never hit a fade. He said, I mean, I could try and hit you one here on the driving range, but he said, I'd never hit one in competition. 
like ever. I'd never try and hit one. DJ never draws the golf ball. The only time he's going to draw the golf ball is he's hitting a little chip, kind of three-quarter, knockdown, nine iron, little wedge. But other than that, he's just going to hit his shot. So, you know, I also want to look at juniors and say, listen, can you hit me a shot? If you tell me you hit draws, okay, let's see it. And I'll give them, all right, let's do a 10-ball challenge. Okay, there's the flag. Okay, you've got 10 balls. All t- If you draw it, okay, all 10 of these balls need to start right of the target. Let's just start from there. And if you tell me you draw it, it damn well better start right of the target. <laughs> you tell me you fade it, it's got to start left of the target. Right. And I work just on that first part to say, listen, don't worry about where the ball is going to go. Just see if you can start to control and understand your start line. And yes, there's things that you can do in your golf swings. There's nuances. But a lot of times guys are worried about so much Players are worried, change so much about what they're trying to do with their golf swing that they're not even thinking about where the ball needs to start in order to hit the shot that they're trying to hit. So if you're a fader of the golf ball and the ball's starting right of your target, that's not going to work. Right. And then your alignment is going to get miles offline. I mean, I can distinctly remember Brooks faded the golf ball pretty much every single major he won. The week for the miss was a straight ball. Just started left. And stayed straight. Didn't fade. Didn't necessarily hook. He didn't mind the pull because he always knew then the club was in the right place. But I distinctly remembered that if the miss was straight for him and didn't cut, but started left of the target, we would always know that things were pretty good. And that's one of the things in in going back to work with Brooks again. He was like, you know, one of the things that's changed is now I feel like I can consistently start the golf ball left of my target. I'm not worried about it going left and I'm not seeing it go massively to the right. And that is the key. Uh, I just want to say, love the name of the podcast. I thought you did a great job with it. Son of a butch. I mean, how can you get better than that? That's Claude Harmon. Claude, thanks so much for the time. Get some rest, and we'll catch up with you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Shane. All righty. Big thanks to Claude for jumping on the program this week. Make sure you check out the podcast he does called Son of a Butch with Claude Harmon. has got some fun guests on there and some good conversations as well. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Enjoy your time with family. Just a reminder. If they're annoying you, it only lasts a short amount of time. So don't let it annoy you too much. Chat with you guys next week. Get a Grip with Shane Bacon is a production of iHeartRadio.